Hello, it's me, Tim Clare, and I am the host of Death of a Thousand Cuts, which you're listening to, and I'm recording this introduction because today's guest, it's fair to say, is not someone I have been looking forward to having on the show for the simple reason that I never thought in a million years that they'd be interested in coming on the show. I, 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 and then I decided, you know what, I'll drop him an email. Because just in the one in a hundred chance that he's got some free time and he'd be willing to come on the show. And he got back to me really quickly and he was enthusiastic. And it's not the kind of show that he would normally be talking on, you know, talking directly to writers. Because the person I got in touch with, as you probably know, because you will have probably read the show notes or seen the title, is um, James W. Pennebaker. He's a uh, social psychologist. Uh, he's currently based in Austin, I believe. And uh, he he researches, if you've done my Couch to k writing bootcamp, uh, and if you haven't, then it's still online, you can go up and, and start an eight-week course. It's completely free uh, to help you get better with your writing. But you'll know that I talk about uh, James W. Pennebaker's work in expressive writing and how he discovered some pretty incredible things about what happens when people write down some of the most traumatic incidents they've been through and relate those to their feelings and and we get into that I chat to him about that because and I think it's really really useful for writers to hear this because we have all sorts of assumptions about language and what we do and why we do it but it's pretty incredible the power of engaging with difficult events in one's life and I think some of the stuff he comes out with and some of the distinctions he makes the type of writing that does help people that he's found makes people feel better makes them physically better makes their immune systems better makes them heal better and this is not pie in the sky stuff this is over 200 uh, follow-up studies peer research peer-reviewed replicated it's 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 pretty incredible and I think if you haven't uh, read about his research before you are going to be pretty amazed but he goes into real detail about the kind of writing that helps and I think if you do any writing at all if you're a writer you're going to find some stuff that could really really radically make a huge difference in your life while enriching your writing practice but we didn't just talk about that because as well as writing about the kind of psychological and emotional side of expressive writing he's also done research into the social functions of language and some incredibly detailed computer-based statistical analysis and we talk about this as well but you know stuff that he had to uh, he and his colleagues had to build the software in order to be able to to do but they've performed statistical analysis on all sorts of things from people's emails to people's words that they use in everyday life to uh, to novels to scripts to poems incredible amounts of data crunching and the stuff he's found out is it's kind of mind-blowing and a lot of it is very counterintuitive about what we can find out about people from the words we use and particularly the tiny little words that we don't notice so and we talk a little bit about his book that he uh, compiles some of this research in the secret life of pronouns because uh, you'll know if you listen to this for a while right you know one of my favorite phrases to say when i'm talking about the right craft of writing is crunchy specificity how i love these words that are specific they're con- they're concrete and they give us things that exist that we could touch or taste that feel have some kind of permanency to them and he he refers to them as content words you know things like nouns verbs and big adjectives um things that if i talk about if i talk about if i say the word lion then your rough idea of a lion is going to be if i say lion you see a you see a lion and i can say lion and we kind of have a shared understanding of what the basic idea of a lion is 
But he's really, really interested in these things called function words, or sometimes they're referred to as style words, function words, which account for one less than one-tenth of one percent of yours and my vocabularies, but they make up almost 60% of the words that you say and you write. So these are things like, uh, the, these are kind of like little words like uh, pronouns, I, me, mine, a, the, so as well as, you know, uh, you have these, obviously a and the are not pronouns, they're prepositions. They're not their articles. Oh, God. See, this I, look, This is the thing. You do not have to be a grammar nerd to understand this. So articles, prepositions, like in, of, from. I, th- I think of like the words he's talking about in this as the cartilage of language. Stuff that we don't see, but kind of like holds it all together. Talk about the relationship between things, adjust things. And it's fascinating. These are deeply social words, and yet they're words that often are spoken so quickly uh, that we don't consciously register them. That they're, they're, A lot of them we speak at, a, at the rate that you'd normally associate with being subliminal. So we talk about this in great detail. And I think as a writer, you don't have to be a language nerd. I don't want this to ever sound like I'm saying, hey, if you haven't done statistical analyses of different parts of language, then you're not a real writer. What I'm saying is, and why I'm so excited is because all of these tools are out there. Language is the tools that you and I use to create stories. And we've got all sorts of skills that we've just abstracted and picked up and have made us experts in it. And and some of that may be hardwired into being a human. So, you know, like you are already incredibly, incredibly adept at using all the things that we're going to talk about in this episode but it can be it can be mind-blowing I think to actually bring into conscious focus these things that we're barely aware of and he talks about some incredible predictions and conclusions that one can draw statistically simply from the frequency of different function words like pronouns within pieces of text now i'm going to say get to put a content warning here that we do discuss quite frankly things like and including suicide so if you are not feeling up to discussion of that nature uh, by all means uh, sit this one out I want to make sure, because I've been very aware in previous episodes, there's been some quite frank discussions of mental health and things arising out of that. And um, I, I just want you to not uh, run into any things you weren't expecting. So we, we we talk about that because that's part of part of his research and all the kind of texts that they've analysed. And I just think it's really, really interesting. And I'm so grateful to him for having come on the show and yeah and he was very apologetic about talking about you know things like noun clusters and stuff like that and feeling that people were going to be bored by it but as a writer if you can get interested in this I tell you what it's really addictive and your facility and confidence with language especially if at school you weren't quite sure of a lot of these things and you imagined in your head that loads of people were and they were dead clever starting to get your head around some of the basic terms and sort of just working on becoming aware of the different language choices you're making can be really useful now I think I'm going to record a follow-up episode to this where I go into some of these things in a bit more detail and and, and particularly look at some ways that you might apply some of the information in this episode to your own writing because I think it I think it's really really useful Uh, so by all means uh, I'm going to put that up a bit later this week Uh, if you're listening then I'm probably going to put it up on the Thursday so if you're listening in the future then it will probably already be up I'm going to kind of stop rambling now, except to say at the end, I'm going to just mention a couple of things you can do to support the podcast, but I don't want to to take up any more of your time. I want to honour that 
and uh, not put off people from listening to the episode by doing a really long intro. Uh, it was really good fun talking to him and uh, he was a really, really nice chap. So here we go. This is my chat with James W. Pennebaker. Enjoy. Hello and welcome to Death of a Thousand Cuts, making you an awesome writer one cut at a time. My name's Tim Clare and this is a show for writers about writing, but also for readers and end users of language, which of course is every human being in the entire world, with some, I suppose, notable exceptions. Today, I am joined by uh, James W. Pennebaker, who is, well, this is going to be my first question, actually, just to clarify before we start, before we get into all the fascinating research that you've done, um, linguistic, linguist, uh, psychologist, psycholinguistic, psycholinguist, uh, sociologist, uh, social psychologist, sociolinguistic, for anyone listening, uh, what is, what do you consider your field? Well, I'm kind of a, an oddball. I'm a social psychologist by training, definitely a psychologist. I'm interested in what makes people tick. But with this, I've gone off into other areas to, to, to help in my research. So I'm interested in language, but no self-respecting linguist would ever call me a linguist. I'm, uh, I also spend time with people in communication, uh, in computational linguistics and computer science, and probably three or four other disciplines. So I'm, I'm just, I'm just me. <laughs> I, I wanna. I think that's. Uh, I, I would like to start off, sort of, rather, not prosaically, but uh, at the beginning. Um, can you talk a bit about your early career and um, how you came to be interested in? emotional trauma okay um, I was interested in psychology in in general I, I stumbled across it as a field after I'd been at university for a couple of years and realized this was a an area I was interested in because it would allow me to, to go in many different directions so I major specialized in social psychology and was interested early on in mind-body issues and, and health issues. And my first research as a, as a new faculty member was focusing on physical symptoms, how people knew how they felt. How do you know if you're hungry? How do you know if you're anxious? In other words, what kind of cues are you using? This led to uh, a series of studies. I ended up writing a a book on physical symptoms, and toward the end of my writing, I thought, you know, I ought to just do a, a survey, trying to get a sense of what kind of people get the most kinds of symptoms. So I came, put together a gigantic questionnaire and asked people uh, anything that I wanted to. And so I would ask about their diets. I asked them about how they got along with their parents when they were children. And one of the students that was helping me at the time said, Ooh, how about this? Why don't we ask, did you have ever have a traumatic sexual experience prior to the age of 17? And I thought, that's a great idea. And it's important to appreciate no one ever asked that kind of question. So I included it on this questionnaire, and the questionnaire was a, a ridiculously long one. I ended up passing it out to about 800 students. And what I discovered was that one question about a traumatic sexual experience predicted health problems better than anything I had ever seen. And I ended up working on, on a national sample using a similar question, and again found that uh, uh, people who endorsed that item, and it was about I forget what the numbers were, something like uh, 22% of women and 11% of men reported having had a traumatic experience prior to the age of 17. These are, this is an adult sample, several thousand people. And those people who endorsed that item were th uh, twice as likely to have been hospitalized in the previous year for any cause. They were more likely to have every kind of health problem, major or minor. And this led me to the issue of traumas and how traumas were associated with health problems. And it ended up that it wasn't necessarily a sexual trauma. It was having any kind of traumatic experience that people kept secret. 
that the real toxic problem with it with many traumas is you have to keep them secret often from your closest friends and that was true with traumatic sexual experiences but but also sometimes other traumas and this led me to the study of secrets and made me wonder what if we brought people in the lab and had them in some way talk about or write about these upheavals in their lives and that's what I ended up doing I ended up doing the very first experiment having uh, students come in and I'd have them write about the, the most traumatic experience of their lives, ideally one that they hadn't talked to other people about, and it just simply had them write about it for four days, 15 minutes a day, inside the lab. And we got their permission to track their, their health through the Student Health Center. And what we found in that first study was that people who wrote about traumatic experiences ended up going to the Student Health Center for Illness at about half the rate as people in our control conditions, people who were asked to write about superficial topics. That's amazing. It's incredible. And we did a, a second study where we looked at not just health center visits, but also we looked at immune function. We drew blood before the study, after it was over, and then six weeks later, and found the same thing. And these studies I'm telling you about were actually done in the, in the 80s. And in the years afterwards, there, there were first dozens, then hundreds, and now there have been well over a thousand studies on what we call expressive writing, showing that writing makes a big difference in people's health. And so why this became, got me into language is that I started to look at what were they writing? Because some people benefited and some didn't. And the question that I became obsessed with was what what is it about putting things into words that makes a difference and can you see it in the way people write and this is the was the beginning of my next journey which was how do you evaluate writing you know I had uh, people read these essays and make evaluations is this person benefiting are they telling a story etc and I found that people don't agree on these essays much at all and and just reading these deeply depressing essays really makes people depressed themselves and so it wasn't a very effective strategy so what I ended up doing was um, working with one of my students to write a computer program that could actually analyze the ways people were writing and so that would that that was the beginning this computer program which we eventually called Linguistic Inquiry and Word Count. That's L-I-W-C, which we call LUC. Hmm. This LUC computer program that we, uh, the first version we, we put together in the early 90s, ended up revealing things not just about writing about traumatic experiences, but it ended up revealing things about people themselves. And that I started to realize that the words that people use in everyday language is essentially can tell us about people's psychological state. And so that's what I've been doing for the last 15 or 20 years, trying to understand the kind of the hidden world of language. So that's a very quick story of how I got where I am. Uh, yeah, I it's it's to me it just i remember sort of reading some uh summaries of some of the things that you've been talking about um almost 20 years ago and it just my first reaction being that can't, that can't that can't possibly be be right it seems so uh it seems so amazing that that there could be and and, and perhaps you know in in the time that's passed i've perhaps I'm, I'm slightly less uh I kind of understand that with my through my own writing and through my work you know teaching retreats where people are doing um a writing memoir and you know the things that they disclose and seeing how they develop over the time that we're together um but you mentioned that when uh when your work on expressive writing was originally published i i know in the secret life of pronouns you talk a bit about um how it got a lot of coverage in the media and people started approaching you at parties to kind of spill their guts about terrible things that had happened to them and that although they were they were clearly able to articulate their story they were able to say it they were able to uh express it to another person they weren't keeping it secret um you found that 
on an anecdotal level at least, having a coherent story didn't seem to have improved their physical or mental health. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that. Right. So this is this was a, a real puzzle. Um, so here in my research, I was discovering that having people come in the lab and write about a traumatic experience over several days was associated with health improvements. And then, as, as you mentioned, I discovered that people who would come up and tell me these horrible stories of traumatic experiences, uh, and the people who would often do this, uh, had terrible health. And then I'd see them at another party six months later, and they'd come and they'd tell me the exact same story. And I started to become interested because I was discovering in the analysis of the language of, of, of people who would participate in our studies is that if people came into the laboratory and they told the same story over and over again, mm-hmm. and they had a good story at the beginning, they didn't benefit from writing. It was the people who came in at the beginning and they didn't have a very good or coherent story, but they actually started to put one together that they, when they created a story, that was what was associated with health improvements. So it wasn't having a story that was good for you, it was constructing a story that was good for you. And this, this was such a, an insight for me because sometimes we have stories that Either they just don't work, but we keep, by God, I'm going to stick with this story no matter what. Or that people are telling stories in almost in a ruminative kind of way. We know, for example, when people are depressed, they run over, they go over in their mind the same issues over and over again in exactly the same way. They're stuck in the same story. And there's no benefit to that. If you find yourself obsessing about thinking about the same thing in the same way over and over again, it's just not going to change. You have to change your perspective. You have to change your story. Yeah, you've you said um, that uh, people who benefit from the writing, uh, what what do their those end stories? Is there anything common about them? The, the way that they look, the kind of content of them. Well, this is something that uh, we looked at a lot, maybe 10 or 15 years ago, and we're starting to look at that again. There are certain certain things we do know. Uh, First of all, when people are writing about traumatic experience, if they can use positive language, positive emotions to some degree, that's usually a sign that that they will benefit. So... A person who can who is writing about something horrible, but who can still say things like care, love, um, joy, words such as that, they benefit more than people who don't. Even if they say, I'm not happy, nobody cares about me, there's no joy in the world, those people are better off than people who say, um, uh, I'm sad, uh, there's misery in the world, etc. In other words, if you say, I'm not happy, you're still thinking along that dimension of happiness. So that's one. The second is is that if we see a change in language from one essay to the next, those are markers of people getting who are going to who are benefiting. And so for example, one that we discovered were pronoun use. So that if a person on one day used lots of words like I, me, and my, uh, to go back to your your grade school days, uh, first person singular pronouns. If you use a high rate of those words on one day and the next day you use words like he, she, they, or even we, what you're doing is you're kind of changing perspective. And people who are changing perspective from, from one day of writing to the next, those people also benefit. In other words, there are these interesting shifts in language that are markers of improvement. See, I just want to, that's, that's a great, that, that leads us on beautifully to the, my next question, which is, you know, you did this work on expressive writing and you talk a bit about uh, developing uh, Luke and realising how much of a, you know, vocabulary of words you were going to have to build to be able to analyse uh, the language uh, sources that you were looking at. Um, can you talk a bit about 
that process and where that analysis ultimately uh, led as you started to move into your discoveries about pronouns? So there were a lot of things that were going on at the same time in in terms of my research. So here I was discovering that there were these shifts in pronouns and other markers of language that were predicting health improvements. But also at the same time, I was discovering that some of the most powerful words in um, understanding people's psychological state were words that uh, were the kind of the most small, forgettable words in English. Words like pronouns, I, me, you, he, she, they, it, or prepositions, to, of, for, or conjunctions, and, because, since, or negations, no, not, never, auxiliary verbs, am, is, was. Whew, you've just now, uh, many people who listen to this are now having flashbacks and probably going <laughs> into post-traumatic stress syndrome uh, of miserable experiences in, in grade school. But these small words <clears throat> I discovered are a, a class of words called function words. They are the most common words that we have in our vocabulary. They don't tell us what people are saying. They're not content words. They more are kind of the glue that that holds nouns and regular verbs together. And they are they, they also make speech work much more efficiently, much more effectively. And so, for example, um, they are processing the brain differently. They are... Um, e- and, and they are they're words that are very much social. So, so for example, think, ima- imagine this. Imagine you walk into, uh, you're going home, and in, on the front walkway, just before you get to your door, there's a paper on the floor, and it says, I'm not here yet. I'll be back soon. And you look at that, and you, on one level, that note makes sense, but on another level, it makes no sense at all. I, who's I? Am, am implies present tense. When was it written? Uh, I'll, I'll be back soon and so forth. And, and I'll be back, back, back where? In other words, we don't know anything about this. We don't know who the the author was, who the audience was. Maybe that note blew in, blew from from someplace else, or maybe it's intended for you. You don't know. But all of those words only have meaning from uh, between the the author of it and the presumed audience of it. They are all social words, and by reading that, we have a sense of what those two people relationship might be. In other words. There's a tremendous amount of information in that note that is in, involved in these function words. And this is, was the beginning of, of some of the things I started to discover. To, to give you a, a, a simple example, I can go into a classroom, or in, I can go into any group of people, and I could predict which people are most socially engaged, the people who care the most about other people, who think about the most, if all these people will just give me their last week of outgoing email or text messages or whatever. And what I, all I need to do is look at how frequently they use third-person pronouns, he, she, they, words like that. Because the more that people use those words, the more they are interested in other human beings. Now, on one level, that's stupidly obvious. <laughs> but, but on another, it's kind of amazing. You know, we have a million questionnaires to try to get at how socially engaged people are. I can just go in and count people's words, and I don't have to ask them a thing. And that's, if you now start thinking about words that way, I can learn a, a lot about you by looking at how you look 
use third-person pronouns. I'll learn even more if I know about your first-person singular pronouns, I, me, and my, or how you use articles and prepositions, etc. In other words, each type of word category says something about you. It says something about me in terms of how we are looking at the world, how we think, how we connect with others. You mention uh, in The Secret Life of Pronouns, you mentioned that content words, so the nouns, verbs, adjectives, adverbs, and to a certain extent, um, and function words, they're broadly associated with two different areas of the cerebral cortex. So to a certain extent, the distinction, is it hardwired in human beings or... Um, can you talk us through that a little bit? <laughs> <laughs> no, I can't. Uh, I, I, I can, so I can tell you some. So, for example, we know that these function words are differentially processed in a, a part of the brain called Broca's area, which is in the frontal lobe. The frontal lobe is also associated with more social skills, etc. And the nouns, regular verbs, etc., are overwhelmingly processed in the temporal lobe, which is kind of right for most of us on the left side of our left side of our brain. And if there's brain damage to say the Broca's area versus Wernicke's area in the temporal lobe, you get very different types of, of deficits. In fact, you can get it by if someone's had a small stroke and their speech is impaired, if they can name things just fine, uh, but they speak in a way that's really, in a slow way where they, they can't make reference to, they, they can't use function words, we know it's probably damaged close to, the, to Broca's area. So, so we, we know that. Now, why are these, why are these uh, aspects of language in different parts of the brain? Is it, is it innate? Is it learned? Uh, it's clearly, there's clearly a biological predisposition for the development of this, given that most of us, uh, our brains structure language uh, in some way. I don't pretend to be an expert on, on brain function or uh, kind of the ev- evolutionary forces that have, have brought about these changes. I, I find it particularly fascinating because, you know, my daughter is 22 months at the moment and she's undergoing like this explosion in content words, in, in vocabulary. But I think probably in terms of those function words, she might have two pronouns and very few uh, of this kind of like cartilage of language uh, to give it a not very flattering uh, phrase. But, you know, these ands and these prepositions and things, she can say this one, that one and me. But her content, her vocabulary, her nouns, her concrete nouns are, are are really, she's got, you know, hundreds now suddenly. And those have developed over weeks. So, I you know, I see this distinction in someone who I'm seeing like develop language right in front of me and so it made it was so fascinating to me to see how invisible as you kind of put it these you call them stealth words these function words are how we just don't it's like the brain it's like we don't notice them we don't process them in the same way and and what's fascinating is over the next two years she's going to become a a uh, a function word genius and uh, and here's what's interesting. When you learn another language, when anybody learns another language, especially after about the age of 12, it's pretty easy to learn nouns and regular verbs and content. The killer is always these function words. And there's not that many in English. There's only about 180 common ones. But you know if someone does, is not a native speaker of English because they'll mess up on prepositions and articles and pronouns in ways that a native speaker will think, how can you not know this versus that? And it's the same thing when I speak bad Spanish. And, you know, function words are just a nightmare to try to use well. Whereas I can do, you know, I can do just fine without, with, with nouns and regular verbs. 
Yeah, my, we just came back from Finland and my mother-in-law is Finnish. And when she was back in Finland speaking her first language, because Finnish doesn't uh, have male and female pronouns, her ability to use those in English so kind of temporarily mm -hmm. collapsed. Um, she couldn't distinguish exactly. gender. <laughs> and it was really, it's really, it was really, really interesting. I, that, I just... That makes me want to, I guess the next thing I want to ask is, have do some of these differences you've found, do they hold across different cultures and different languages? They do, and they hold up actually very well. I'll give you uh, a couple of real simple examples. By and large, men and women use language somewhat differently, and it, they use it differently because frankly, men and women are somewhat interested in somewhat different things. Women just statistically are more interested in other human beings. Males, you know, we're just not that interested in other human beings compared to women. And if you do an analysis of everyday conversation, women, and this is true around the world, women spend more time talking about other human beings. They're aware of them. Men tend to talk more about objects and things events, etc. Now, what that means is women use more pronouns, men use more articles and prepositions. You can, just, you can take that to the bank. And when a male is talking about other, pe other people, the male uses pronouns. When women are talking about objects and things, they use articles and prepositions. So we all have the same abilities. It's, it's really these words are tapping how we're paying attention. Now, Chinese doesn't have articles, but that doesn't mean that they're not that males or humans in China who are interested in other human beings or, or um, objects and things don't use the equivalent of articles. Instead of talking about the table or a table, they just say table if it means a table, and they'll use this table or that table. But the point is, is that there, you get these same differences in language among men and women in Chinese, as you do men and women in English. And, the, and, and, this, and there are also big differences in status. High status people uh, make less reference to themselves than low status people. It kind of goes against what everybody believes. Yeah, because you'd imagine it would be kind of like I, I, me, me, mine. You'd be talking about yourself, right? You imagine that's a high status thing. That's the, I guess, unexamined intuitive guess. That, that's right. And when I first started doing this research, I kept thinking there's got to be some mistake because I'm not finding that. But it's not a mistake. Listen to a, uh, a secure leader, and they make very few references to self. They don't use the word I, me, or my very much at all. Uh, look, pay attention to somebody who is very insecure, who generally is not a leader. They will use I words at much higher rates. And again, this holds up across culture. We've analyzed uh, the language of uh, ancient Greek and ancient Greek stories. You see My the same goodness. thing there as you see in uh, in, in, uh, in modern. English. Have you got any tentative uh, hypotheses about why some of those things might be? Why a lower status person might refer to themselves more? Why somebody who was uh, more depressed might uh, use I more? So the reason is is that language tracks where we're paying attention. If I make reference to a friend and I would start referring to he or she, it means I'm thinking about that person. In other words, my attention is tracking what, or my language is tracking, tracking where I'm paying attention. When I use I words, words relative to the concept of self, I am looking inward, it, just very briefly. So think about how you feel if you are self-conscious or insecure. You often feel that you're standing there alone. You're looking inward. You're aware of your internal feelings and states. We know, for example, that people who are depressed use I words at much higher rates than people who are not depressed. An, an interesting series of studies that were done in the 70s had people come to into a laboratory and sometimes they would write asked they were asked to write something and sometimes there for some people there'd be a big mirror in the room 
that was right in front of them. And, and there was a little note on it saying, please don't move the mirror, this is for another study. And in another condition, the mirror was turned around so they couldn't see themselves. If they wrote and there was a mirror in front of them, people use the word I at higher rates. The fact is, is where we pay attention, so, so that's the theory behind this. When we analyze language, it's telling us where people are paying attention. Now, as a writer myself, uh, I'm particularly interested in how this this shakes out in fiction, in plays, and 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 things like that. Because you know, you you you'd imagine, I guess, and you talk about this a bit in the book that that great writers uh, would in, like instinctively make these distinctions in dialogue between their male and female characters that they're going to be so kind of like involved in them that these changes that you've tracked will uh, translate into fictional dialogue what did you can you talk a bit about that and what you found uh well this is something that we i i was giving a talk somewhere and somebody asked that question of me and uh you know and i my wife's a, a writer and uh, i just assumed that uh, men and women writers if they are real craftsmen would be able to to um mimic the dialogue of the way real men and real women actually speak. Uh, it turns out that that's not entirely true. If you look at how Shakespeare's women talk, they talk like men. And if you look at uh, how Nora Ephraim's uh, men talk, they, are, they talk more like women. Now, there are some, there, there's a small number of, of uh, writers, uh, and we focus primarily on playwrights and uh, script writers for movies, there are some that actually have very good ears for both men and women. But there's this, there is this general bias that a man's woman in a, in a play speaks a little bit more like a man, and a woman's man, a, a woman writer's man in a play talks a little bit more like a woman. They're not, the effects aren't huge, but they are consistent. These things that you're talking about, they're almost like, you know, unconscious tells in poker or something like that that give away what kind of hand someone has. They're things that you discover from analysing people's language that aren't necessarily, that are often completely invisible, not just to the person saying them, but to people around them as well. Um, I guess, like, the burning question, or at least my burning question here, is these pronoun choices or i mean i suppose they're not even conscious choices these use of stealth words are they a thermometer or a, or a thermostat in other words are they are you are they simply markers of our internal state that that um where you're, you're able to sort of take the temperature of what's going on or can we use them to influence it you know so can someone go okay so i'm going to feel less depressed by introducing more words like joy into my language and saying I less. Okay, that's a, that, that's a central question. I, I think if you look over the big, if you look over the big picture to all of this, words reflect psychological state. They don't drive it. In other words, um, I can get people to start using I words more or less. There's a lot of ways I, we've done that in studies. It has no effect on their psychological state that we can see. However, if I start using language somewhat differently, I can imagine that it influences people differently. So, um, if I use language in a particular kind of way, if I'm a, a, a politician and I'm trying to speak to an audience, there are certain ways of speaking that I think I, I will come across as more authentic. Even though I might not be authentic, I will sound more <laughs> authentic, and it, and it may have some kind of impact. So in that sense, it, it influences others, but maybe not me. And I should also say, it's really hard to change your language. And, and it's also very hard to actually hear it. Uh, one other thing that's important is that it's not as though language is this independent uh, 
channel. It, the human is a package. And so one of the most fundamental dimensions of language is formality. And, and uh, uh, I guess speaking in a kind of an analytic, hierarchical way at one end of the scale and a kind of more personal, narrative, here and now kind of language at the other. I can speak in this very formal, critical, analytic way. And when I do, almost by definition, even as I'm talking now as an example, I sit up straight, my shoulders are back a little bit, and I, I speak in this way. So. Not only is, are my words different, the tone of voice is different, my body posture is different, my facial expression is different, than if I'm really laid back and everything's cool and boy, it's so great to see and so forth, my entire body changes. In other words, language is just part of the system and nonverbal cues will change with it, my biology will change with it, my, my posture, etc. I, I noticed I was particularly the other thing, you know, in terms of writing, um, as you know, I, I do write fiction. I've written some memoir. I've also written poetry. And you did some studies of, for example, poets and found. Can you talk? Because I was, you know, reading about, um, you know, your studies, for example, of someone like Sylvia Plath and how pronoun use um, what you drew from that. And it's quite startling, I, I found it, actually. That was one of the things where I was like, I really had to go and have a walk because it was quite shocking. Can you? Would you be able to touch on that a little bit? Well, one of the first studies that I did several years ago was looking at suicidal versus non-suicidal poets. And was it possible to see the difference between the two in their poetry? In other words, are there some tell, if you like, about being suicide prone. So I went in and selected uh, about, um, it's been several years, but it, it was a small number of poets. It was something like 14, 18 poets, half of who committed suicide, half who didn't, and they were matched in all sorts of ways in terms of age, country, uh, etc. And Doing an analysis of the poetry, I would have, when I started, I would have assumed that the suicidal poets would have made more references to sadness and death, etc. Turned out they didn't. Uh, suicidal and non-suicidal poets are all kind of, uh, tend to be introspective and, and somewhat, uh, I think, depressed. I think that's, there's probably a, that might be a job description. But more interesting was the use of the word I, that the suicidal poets used the word I at much higher rates than non-suicidal poets. And if you go in and you look at the poetry, it, that their use of I is really, it, it is very much self-focused. It is much more, and that's what we find with people who are depressed. The more depressed people are, the more they use the word I. And this, this was the one striking tell between the suicidal and non-suicidal poets. And, and since then, we've done these analyses looking at uh, people, we did, we did an analysis of a uh, explorer who was in Tasmania, uh, in Australia, who died mysteriously in the 1800s. And he kept, he, he, he wrote some. And one of the questions was, was he murdered or did he commit suicide? And what we found was, in analyzing his, uh, his papers, that his use of I inc was increasing exponentially toward the end of his wow. life. And so I think the cold case is over. I think that he probably did, in fact, commit suicide. Wow. So all, all of these things are, you know, really amazing uh, analytical tools, and they're great ways for, you know, it sounds like with some of these things, do you think things like that could ever be used to as kind of almost like early warning systems for, you know, ways of discovering if someone is, you know, is becoming depressed or becoming isolated or is that is that is that too much of a stretch or I don't think it is. I think it it is a it is something that's realistic. It you know, part of it depends on the medium that you are, are analyzing maybe everyday speech or emails. Uh, and there have been 
discussions among people at schools? Could this be used as uh, as a way to identify students who are dip- uh, suicide prone or in the military? So the idea is not it's not a far fetched idea. Mm. And have you found what? So there's there's this there's the kind of the big data side of it where you, you are able to um, draw inferences from large volumes of data. But for people operating as individuals, what things can we lessons can we draw from this or what things can have you found that you've been able to take from this and apply to your own you know, language use. Has your language use changed since learning all of this? I would imagine, I would find it, for a while, I would find it really difficult to, you know, even talking to you, you know, when we started talking, you know, there's part of me thinking, goodness, what am I, I feel like I'm leaking everywhere, you know, all this information. It's horrible. Um, Here's the beauty. You can't hear it. You know, I suppose I'm one of the world experts on these kind of words, I can't hear it in others. Now, I can stop and start paying attention, but I can only do that for a minute or two. Our brains just aren't set up for that. The one thing that I have noticed is I am attentive to occasional times when someone uses a pronoun that doesn't quite fit. And that's one thing that I I guess I am a little bit more attentive to. So if... If a person on television is asked um, something about what they did and they don't use, I di- use say, first-person singular, and they switch it to uh, something like we, or they drop the word I. So uh, did you, uh, uh, when you came home, did you see uh, did you fight with your spouse? Uh, no, we got along just fine. I, as opposed to no, I got along. I, I got along, or, or somehow answering it more personally. Answering. Are you, are answer- you saying that that implies like a, a an evasion, or it can can be a signal of someone being disingenuous? Yes. So it is. It, it is when a person doesn't use I when they should. It is a psychological defense. They are psychologically pushing the topic away from themselves. They're not aware of it, but they do. Or or another is is they use a certain kind of hedge. When a person says. Um, did, so did you uh, steal that money? And if I say, let me be absolutely clear, I did not steal that money. When a person <laughs> says that, if they lead it off with, let me be perfectly clear that I didn't, someone who says, says that is using a technique that, that psychologically and actually logically makes that, that sentence you can't prove it if it's right or wrong. I want to be clear that I didn't do it. That sentence is simply saying, I want to be, yes, I am clear that I didn't do it, but I'm not saying I didn't do it. And a person who <laughs> didn't do it says, will just say, I didn't do it. And that's, it's really quite striking in terms of ways of looking at words that can tell us a little bit more about a person's psychological state. It's, 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 it's incredible that, when you say those lines that so many of them are familiar from um media trained I, I you know i don't want to go down the whole uh politicians are a rum lot kind of route but at the same time it does you know reflect something that i you know you hear a lot in s- spokespeople and politicians l- l- let you know, let me be clear and <laughs> like you say i've heard it so often and it's like well no one's going to prevent you from being clear that's not you know but <laughs> <That's> it's right <laughs> yeah uh, when, I, when a person says let me be clear or i've said this before or things like that your be your uh red flags are going up yeah that's that's and and, and so and and so you're and so you feel like you've just you're just slightly more attentive to those moments in life where uh, someone is when someone, I suppose, is, is becoming a, 
I guess like a st- not a statistical outlier, but where there's something that you're more aware of slightly anomalous uses of uh, language. That's, I think that's a, that's the best way to put it. And it's also important to appreciate and that here we've been finding all of these effects with language and the ability to pre- predict honesty versus deception or high status versus low or depression prone or not or uh, being an analytic thinker versus not, etc. All of these are statistically associated with things that we're measuring, often important things, but it's all probabilistic. In other words, we do better than chance, we do better than flipping a coin, and we do better than a regular human who listens. But we don't, we're far from perfect, and it's important to appreciate that even though I can tell, you know, make a prediction if someone's a suicide prone versus not, I'm still not going to be that good at at predicting because humans are a wily lot and and really complicated. So it's not as though what I'm saying is is a sure bet. It isn't. It's just probabilistically we do better than chance. Yeah, it was really interesting actually. That was one of the things um I found so interesting reading The Secret Life of Pronouns was how although you know, the difference between uh, men and women's pronoun use is statistically significant. And, you know, by the in those terms, you know, a pronounced and unambiguous one in terms of a single kind of minute of utterances or a, or a dialogue exchange. The actual difference is not that great. It's just when you look at it um, across the whole spectrum and across a year and across widened language use that that distinct and definite differences but and that's the averaged out uh, difference as well and they you know I was really interested to see that there was more of a difference you know by the same people in age than there was uh between uh the genders so to to make it uh, to make this more concrete if you give me um uh, a 300 word essay that a large group of people have written I will be able to tell you the difference between males and females probably around with 70% accuracy where 50% is chance and 70% accuracy is you know it it's actually pretty decent but it's if you're wanting 100% hang it up you're just not going to get it and if you give me uh their blogs for the last two or three years, unless we throw out all the things that that are clearly, say, gender stereotyped, and I now try to predict, I might be able to get up to 75%, and if it's a wonderful, amazing day, maybe 80%, but I it's probably not better than 75%. So that's important to appreciate, is there's a lot of noise in here. Yes, yeah, it's 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 so fascinating and so suggestive, and so much of the work is uh, either kind of counterintuitive or just. I just feel like reading this book and reading your work. I I felt so woken up by it, you know, like I felt like I was reading it and going, "Oh, hey, you can't just take these things for granted. There's stuff going on that you don't." notice and it kind of evoked a really rather than you know as some people might think hearing statistics and uh probabilistic kind of things and you know people maybe who aren't quite as uh geeky about uh statistics and numbers might you know kind of think oh that you're kind of saying humans are like these kind of robots that we can predict but actually for me it was it kind of brought out this wonderful thing that we don't know ourselves quite as as well as we think we do and there's all these things kind of cut that we're doing that um there's still so much mystery to be explored that's certainly my experience of reading it anyway well i'm glad that's what you came away from uh, this with because that's certainly been my experience never in a trillion years would i have ever thought that i would become excited about articles and prepositions never in a trillion (laughs) years and the fact that here is this playground of ideas that are just just there for the taking. It's been one of the most unbelievably exciting uh, 
adventures I've been on. In search of articles and prepositions, my high school English teacher would roll over in her grave. <laughs> well, um, I just thank you so much. Um, I'm gonna, I'll put links to uh, to uh, the Secret Life of Pronouns uh, in the uh, show notes for anyone who's listening who wants to grab a copy. I heartily recommend it. It's absolutely uh, fantastic. But Jamie, I just want to say thank you so much for your time and for your. Um, for your really, really fascinating uh, sharing of your work. I've been really interested in what you're doing for a long time and it's um, it's a real treat to get to finally have an excuse to chat to you. Well, thanks very much. I've really enjoyed this. Oh, cheers. Okay, uh, take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. And that's it. Thank you very much for listening. I hope you found that as fascinating as I did. It's okay if you didn't get into writing to be talking about articles and prepositions and the different frequencies thereof in high-status females versus low-status males or whatever. That's fine. I just think this is the kind of stuff that never gets talked about in writers' classes and it's fundamental to the way we use language. Uh, If you'd like to uh, read a copy of his book, uh, The secret life of pronouns i've put a link in the show notes there is so 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 much more than i could possibly fit into this episode without really taking the piss out of him i did kind of consider whether i could keep him there for three hours going through every part of the book but we've touched you know maybe 20 percent of the stuff he goes into and it is fascinating and i think there's loads of stuff there that you can aside from just being fascinating anecdote fodder fodder to drop uh next time you're down the pub with your friends like it is really really useful at thinking about the ways different people use language and how you can exploit that within your work i'm certainly going to record another episode where i talk about this and the implications of it for my crunchy specificity uh, mantra which is starting to feel to me slightly like just a call to write more like a bloke or at least an archetypal, statistically normative, high-status bloke, uh, which makes me feel like a slight douchebag. But I, it, it, I'm going to... This is why I love doing this podcast, because I learn things. And uh, I'm sounds like I'm going to... You know, I've learned something there. So I want to talk about that a little bit and how you might apply some of these things and how you could kind of like... Uh, play some of these out and I, I, I might you know mention one or two other things that come up in the book that we didn't get around to talking about and just some cool things that you could immediately apply to your writing so you that'll be a, an episode coming up where i break down some of the implications from today's chat if you would like to support the podcast as well as uh buying uh the like the secret life of pronouns which i think you'll really enjoy you can also buy my book the honors i'll put a link uh in the show notes uh thank you to all of you who've gone on to amazon and written a review i really appreciate it when i do a call to i feel like such a, a knob when i do like a little call to action going could you please do this for me because you know you've got lives to lead and it's just nice. Thank you. I really appreciate it. And if, you, if you've read the book and you want to leave uh, a review of it online, I, that helps me an awful lot. But buying it is the main thing. I know that a lot of you haven't yet. Um, I think you're going to really enjoy it. I think I'm, it's a novel I'm proud of. And you get to see how I actually apply some of this stuff in my own fiction because I'm a writer and, you know, this is what I do. And if I can't write well, then you might well... You might well want to think again about some of my advice, so it's worth checking that out. Uh, also, eh, just if you want to subscribe to the podcast on SoundCloud, on iTunes, and if you want to leave us a review on iTunes, those things are really helpful. And then I can just make sure that when when the podcast comes out, and especially because you know I'm planning some bonus episodes coming up that might not come out in our regular scheduled time, you're going to make sure you don't miss an episode, and it means that. I have lots of lovely listeners that I can definitely, definitely contact. Finally, if you just want to support the podcast by abunging me a few notes, then you can, um, there's a link on my website, timclairpart.co.uk. You can just go, you can click on this little buy me a coffee tab, or there's one in the show notes. And 
it's like two clicks and you can drop me a few quid and that just goes to hosting costs it goes to keeping the lights on in this <laughs> paying for the equipment and uh and some of the costs that go into like seeking down guests so um and thank you to all of you who've contributed especially for people who've kind of contributed uh, having done the eight week couch to 80k rising boot camp um i'm just so glad you've been enjoying it and thank you so much for uh giving me a little something to allow me to keep sharing it right that's it i think oh and if you want to follow me on twitter i'm there at tim Clare poet and i've got a facebook page as well just it'd be lovely to chat to you and don't and feel free if you want to actually that's the other thing final thing if you want to email me you can go on my website timclepper.co.uk and in the right hand column there's a little little tab that says contact me you can click me and feel free to write to me let me know stuff you'd like me to do in future shows people you'd like me to chat to i know so many of you want me to do more first page critiques i am going to i absolutely double prom you that i am going to do a bunch of those it's just i am doing some editing at the moment of what i'm not going to tell you yet but um it means it's kind of all hands to the pump so i'm doing some episodes that take it takes me quite a while to edit someone's first page i love doing it i'm definitely going to do a bunch more but um, at the moment, I'm just doing a little bit of uh, productivity triage and making sure that I've got enough time. So I, I think I've gone on long enough. I just uh, just like talking to you. If you're still listening to me now, uh, bless you, Blessingtons, as they uh, as nobody with any credibility says. Um, I hope you are well. I hope you are happy. And I hope you have a deeply peaceful week. 